0: worthy of all praise we do praise you this morning as we consider these two psalms psalms 149 and 150 help us Lord through these psalms to give utterance to praise your glorious name help us to see beautiful divine truths in these psalms that stir our spirits and move them heavenward we might see your your glories and your beauties, your redemption, all the reason we have for giving praise to your name. Help us, Lord, to understand these two psalms. And we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to consider them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Johnny mentioned last week, as he was reviewing some of the structure of the psalms, the last five psalms Last handful of Psalms end the book of Psalms with praise. And we've looked at Psalm 146, uh, 147, and last week was 148, and today we're looking at the last two Psalms, the book of Psalms. And they have basically a you know, major point for these two Psalms, at the top of the notes there. The saint leads by example to all of creation by singing a new song in his heart to God. So we'll look at Psalm 149 first, and then Psalm 150. I'll read Psalm 149 here. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation, let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Well, we come then to first verse, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. What, it, what does Scripture mean when it says new song? Sometimes we'll, we'll see that in the Old Testament and the New. There's, a, there's mention of a new song that is to be sung. Anyone would have an idea as to what the Scriptures mean when they call us to sing a new song.
1: We'd be wrong to think it, 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 it signifies a change okay a change of heart of people because God is unchanging, right so they're true yeah. they're coming God. back to the Lord to renew
2: in them hit, renew him in them okay
0: so a renewal of a heart posture mm-hmm. okay responding to God's call to return to yes. him okay. Of course, God's people have always been called to sing to him. But there are times when there's mention of a new song. So I think that's part of it, Keith, that uh, call to be renewed in the mind, renewed with the mouth, with the heart, to sing. Anything anything else?
1: One more question, looking forward to a new song?
0: Is it looking forward to Christ? Well, yes, I mean, and, no, okay. uh, yes, it is looking forward to <laughs> <in> Christ. Is <laughs> <laughs> in reference to the new song we will sing this People of Israel, song and like their Messiah. I think yes, that's part of it too. There's that an anticipation of what is to come, what the Lord is going to do in the future. Uh, however, near or far it is to the Israelite worshipers' uh, perspective, yes, that there is that joy. Uh, that call to sing because of what is to come. Joseph, were you going to say something else?
2: Yeah, um, it also might mean um, have to do with if God does something for you, miraculously, all of a sudden, you want to send a new song to Him. Like okay. when Mary is visited by the angel and told circuit birth to the Messiah, she then breaks out and prays.
0: Okay. So, because of some deed of the Lord, <coughs> there is this call to sing All right. So it's one that praises God for a redemptive deed, sometimes indicating a song to be composed and sung on account of a new phase in redemptive history. So I'll have you guys look at some verses here. Um, I'll need someone to read Psalm 33.3. Psalm Another person to read Psalm 96, 1. Another to read Psalm 98, 1. (coughs) Still another to read Psalm 144, 9. Oh, I don't need to write them down because they're already in your handout. Does anyone want to read Psalm 33, 3 for us? Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96, 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the
2: Lord all the earth. 98, 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. 144, 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God.
0: Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play to you. You see there, Exodus 15. you guys know what's going on in Exodus 15?
2: Isn't that right after um, they
0: cross the Red Sea? It is. What what do they do right after they cross the Red Sea? They praise God. They praise God, yes. (laughs) Exodus 15, you probably will see in your Bible the... Chapter summary or title something like Moses's song, right? So that's a a song. It's a new song that is composed and sung by the people of God, precisely because of God's strong redemptive deed of bringing His people out of the hand of the Egyptians and looking forward to the going into, going to the Promised Land. Revelation five nine and Revelation fourteen three also. Speak of a new song as well. So here we have God's ongoing uh, redemptive power on display. And as God is carrying his people along, they are called to sing praise to his name. And he continues to give them more and more reason to worship his name, to sing song to him. The newness of the song, Psalm one forty nine, could be on account of bringing the formerly exilic people back to their land. Recall uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at Psalms one forty six, one forty seven, that we thought well, maybe they are uh, in that context of Ezra and Nehemiah, people returning to uh, to Jerusalem, you know, gathering the outcasts. That could be a new phase in uh, God's redemptive history with his people. In any case, God's people are called to sing praises to his name, considering the wonderful works of God, considering what he has done for them, and considering who he is. Verses 2 and 3, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. So we have, in these verses, gladness from the people of God. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Now why should God's people back then be glad? Why should they have taken pleasure? or Why should they have rejoiced in God? There isn't just one answer, of course, to this question. His deliverance, you know, okay. multiple iterations of bondage. Okay, deliverance from bondage. Yes, and... they have behind them the Assyrian and Babylonian oppressions. Of course, they have been Behind that is Egyptian. What other reasons might the people of God, Israel, be glad and rejoice in his Maker? Those are political forces that oppress the people. Was that their major problem? Some of them might have thought so.
1: Famine. Okay. His provision, right? Giving them this land, which
0: is a, a
1: vital trade
0: route,
1: which made them prosper.
0: Okay. Deliver them from famine, from poverty, from uh, plague and waste. Okay. There are a lot of, uh, in Deuteronomy in particular, there are a lot of um, blessings that are given, and there are curses that are given to the people as they obey or, or disobey, right? As they, Are faithful to the covenant or not? Why else might Israel be glad and rejoice in his Maker? Mm-hmm. So the fact that God had made people up, yes, that would be one reason. God, God says, I made you, and I made you for my, my glory. I made you, uh, have given you uh, grace upon grace, and you should rejoice. He has revealed himself to his people. He has created a people to whom he would reveal himself. Those are wonderful reasons to rejoice, to be glad. How about deliverance from sin? That's kind of what I was getting at with the, the political forces, you know, those national forces of oppression. Yeah, those are, those are big problems. If you know the, the history of God's people, oftentimes, as we'll see in Psalm 107 this morning, the, the Israelites, they recognize that their state of affliction is often because of their own sin. They often suffer because of their own sin. And God brings nations to shape, ch- to chasten his people whom he loves. So the big problem, the big elephant in the room for Israel is their own sin. And God has provided a way for Israel to rejoice and be glad in his maker. The whole Levitical system was one of grace. Deliverance from sin is a wonderful reason to rejoice and be glad in His Maker. Atonement, what circumcision points to, and just all the blessings in the Old Testament that speak of the that, that speak of the coming Messiah. You know the tithes and the shadows, many different pictures that God has given His people to point forward to the coming Messiah. So a lot of reasons. Why people back then should rejoice to be glad in their maker? Why are you glad? I'm assuming you are glad. What are some reasons that you personally are glad, that you personally rejoice in your maker? Take what they're happy about and also let us be happy about it as well. But I think uh, one of the biggest things that gives me joy is that it's not a, uh, a Benjamin Franklin system where he turns a key, and spins it, and says, like, Are you guys on your own? He's there, he's with us every day. It's not something, he's not a distant God. Mm-hmm. He's a very personal God, and he's there with us close every day, forgiving, guiding. Something. Yes. How has he fit? And very and something that you rejoice in. You rejoice. You will rejoice that your Lord is with you and will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes. Amen. Joseph, you're going to say something. I just I see it yes. on your face.
2: Um, well, I'm glad, that God, that He's uh, promised me an eternal inheritance due to Jesus' resurrection since this world can be pretty rough, but I have an inheritance that that Peter says is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven.
0: Mm -hmm. Amen. Surely that's reason to rejoice, to be glad, that we have this eternal inheritance, won't fade, won't be corrupted, that Jesus has secured with his blood. Perhaps husbands are rejoicing that God has given them a wife. Parents here rejoicing are glad in their Maker that they have given you know, that He has given them children. <coughs> Perhaps we rejoice that we have a job, friends, many other things. So many reasons to rejoice, to be glad in our Maker. look at verse four here the Lord takes pleasure in his people he adorns the humble with salvation talk briefly about this I anticipated this a couple weeks ago verse 4 is just it's humbling no pun intended there he adorns the humble with salvation it says he takes pleasure in and his people, and that, that ought to be humbling when we realize that there really isn't anything pleasurable about us. There isn't anything in us that would say to God, "Look at us! Look how beautiful we are! Surely you would take delight in us. Do you, do you see what I've done. You look at what I've what I've built with my own hands. Look at the family I've made. Look at the reputation." God, we are not pleasurable in ourselves, delightful in ourselves. But here it says, The Lord takes pleasure in His people. How can it be that the Lord takes pleasure in His people? I think the main thing is where He sees His Son in us, He sees Jesus Christ in
1: us, and His righteousness. Yes, as we wrote in His righteousness. I think that's
0: the main thing. Where... Yes. He sees our union with Christ and the perfect righteousness, that robe of righteousness that we are wrapped in. Yes. And as he delights in his only begotten Son, he delights in us who are in his Son. I think we uh, briefly consider this briefly as well. Um, or a couple weeks ago, that in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, the Lord talks to Israel and saying, Why, why did I choose you? Was it because you were so large a people, that you were so mighty a people? What? No. You were small people, you were a weak people. But the reason he gives us because I, I love you. <laughs> I love you because I love you. Because I've decided to set my covenantal love on you I chose you the reason ultimately lies in God not in in us and obviously in, in view of God the son who would um, secure that covenant love by his by his blood what are some ways that God shows his divine love Pleasure. We see here, uh, we, we, we see in verse 4 there, he adorns the humble with salvation. Um, yeah. How does God adorn us with salvation?
2: Because we are justified every step closer to sanctification, it's just adding to that adornment and building up those spiritual treasures and spiritual rewards. Um, so even though the earthly life might not reflect triumphs or adornment or visible signs of God's pleasure towards us, if we are faithful and continually being sanctified, he is adorning us with those spiritual
0: treasures, which is obviously much more worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, Casey. Thank you. the fact that God takes pleasure in you, his people, and the fact that he adorns those who are humble with salvation ought to be a comfort to us. How is How are these facts, how, how are these spiritual realities a comfort to us when we consider our own sin, for instance? But God takes pleasure in you, he delights in you, he adorns you with salvation. Um, Yet you sin, so how can there be comfort there?
2: <clears throat> well, one, we're not a slave to sin anymore; know, we've been freed from this bond. we do sin, uh, you know we can at least repent and be reconciled, right through the, that process. Also, too, um, I think one of the lessons that God gives us is having that conscience, right? Because we are justified. We can be horrified by our sin. Yes. We're not living in depravity thinking that we're okay. But instead, we can turn away from our sin and turn towards Him because He has given us that sight to realize just how horrible and depraved that sin is.
0: Yeah, and even that, so even that repentance is a gift from God. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, it is a comfort that he um, has not given us over to our sin, that he has actually set us free from the bondage of sin, and he has given us a way to confess and um, to have that sin regularly forgiven. So he still takes delight in us, even though we still sin. And that's a comfort to us, because when we sin, we're not threatening the, the blood of Christ, the power of that. Now, of course, we should lament and we should recognize that that sin is horrifying, but it's not that we have uh, been adorned with salvation and now with each sin of ours, we are, uh, that righteous robe is wearing out and there are holes in it Because of what we've done. By grace, we are eternally clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So we always have that comfort. That doesn't give us license to sin. Shall we go on sinning so the grace may abound? Paul asks, may never be. Of course not. So we have that comfort from John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It should be a comfort. How? Uh, how are these facts that God um, takes delight in us and that He humbles, uh, that, he, that He adorns, humble with salvation? How are these beautiful spiritual realities a comfort to you when you are suffering? So we consider the matter of sin. How about when you are suffering? Do you feel like when you're suffering, God is taking delight in you? Maybe if he's a a sick God who takes pleasure in our suffering, our pain, sometimes we might have that misconception of God.
2: I think it helps to think that in our suffering we're not suffering because God has forsaken us. Mm -hmm. He's he's there with us even in our sin, but our suffering doesn't mean that he's seen our sin. Pleasure, even in knowing that while we suffer, He's still with us. He's still walking and holding us up. -hmm. Even during that time. Yes. He's still still delighting in us, even when
0: we suffer, He hasn't walked away. He's still with us. He's still delighting us. He is still sustaining us, even in our suffering. And you could say He's even, through our, our suffering, sanctifying us. That we might be more and more like His beloved Son. That's a comfort. And that's something that we need to hold on to because uh, we don't sometimes think that suffering is, uh, that we can find comfort in our suffering. We might think that God is lashing out against us because of what we've done. But as we'll see this, next, this coming year in Philippians, it was a gift. God has given us gifts. One of those is to believe in Jesus and the other is to suffer. Those two gifts in Philippians that are mentioned, we want one of those. We want that gift of faith in Jesus Christ. But then we also, well, you can have the other one, God. I don't want that. I don't want a a gift of suffering. But that's growing in Christ-likeness. The Son of God who Humble himself. Verses 5 through 9. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. We have singing in the bed here, verse 5. Singing in the bed could be understood one of two ways. Singing in bed because of sickness. You're lying in bed because you're sick. can't get out. Uh, Or it could be uh, because this is a place of meditation. You uh, lie awake meditating on the the Word of God. So it could be... uh, Praising, singing to the Lord even in your suffering, or singing to the Lord as a result of deep and deeper reflection of the Lord's redemptive deeds. How many times do we lie awake at night, anxiously turning the cares of the world in our minds? Guilty. Maybe you all sleep. You know, peacefully, you just put your head on the pillow, and you can turn off the cares of the world. You can turn off the the arguments you have with your spouse, or the uh, um, relationship with your child, or things in the friend, or the church, and at work, you can just turn it all off, and put your head on your pillow, and go to sleep. And if so, then praise God for that. I've lost many nights because of this very thing. Anxious thoughts about the day and the coming week. One thing that has helped me is, I have a, on my nightstand, I have postal notes or just little p- pads of paper, and I'm thinking of something, I can just turn over and just write something down. Hopefully it's uh, understandable when I wake up. I write it down so I won't forget it it'll be there tomorrow and um, set it off to the side or you can pray a prayer you can pray a prayer <laughs> Lord you give up you give your beloved sleep help me to sleep help me to, to think about uh, that you you know this and you carry all of our burdens you, you, are, you father care for for me. That is a comfort. What are some things that you guys do to help yourself when you are lying in bed at night, unable to sleep because of these things? Sometimes prayer, you know, sometimes reflecting that whatever I need to worry about, that God is sovereign in all things. Mm-hmm. What I'm experiencing is also something that He has ordained and is part of His plan. There's peace in that. Yes. Reminding ourselves of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, that He's working this out even for His His glory and your good, even though we might not see it at this point. Yeah. Johnny, you gonna say something? I was. I could think
3: of uh, one example. Is, um financial concerns. Even if you're uh, diligent to plan out your finances, um, it takes time. You know, you might plan a monthly budget or something, but it takes time to follow that plan. So even if you're doing, even if you're doing everything you can, um, things sometimes just don't happen quickly, and that causes us to fixate on. Uh, worry mm-hmm. or, or fixate on trying to trying to do even more than we can really do and that sometimes takes the form of anxiety or worry um, so uh, that causes us to turn to things like you know we've, we've seen unfortunately the Christian self-help of the um, prosperity gospel uh, and that can even cause us to blame ourselves or blame you know even blame God um, but uh, that brings me back to that um, Sermon on Job, and all that we know about Job. Uh, he was doing. He seemed to have been doing everything right. Uh, just like Max said, uh, he still, at the end, at the end of his ordeal, had to know that, uh, you know, God, God was indeed in charge of all those things. Um, so it's kind of that might sound cynical to say that we have hope, because it's really all in God's hands. I don't want to say we should do nothing even
0: when we've done everything, um, we still must rely on the Lord. Mm -hmm. If I could summarize at least the initial, uh, what you were saying initially, playing the long game. Mm -hmm. Which is really what life here on earth is. Our minds should be fixed on uh, what is to come. We are to Work diligently under the Lord every day and pursue His kingdom and His righteousness. Worry about that today, because you got enough trouble for today. But also keeping uh, our eyes on what uh, the Lord will do eventually, bringing it all to its consummation. There's also here a note of singing in battle. Notice there are the two-edged swords in their hands. There's the praise to God for the execution of vengeance on the nations, the punishments of the peoples, the binding of kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron, execution of judgment that's been written. So There's been this decreed judgment, and there's this praise here for God, because the enemy will be conquered. God's people are promised to be agents of divine justice from time to time. And um, you see that in Psalm 1847, which I put there in your notes, and Malachi 4.3 as well. Perhaps historically speaking, this verse, these verses um, speak to the Israelites in their day in which physical battles were necessary to to gain and to maintain the promised land. But then ultimately, finally, this refers to final judgment and the execution of vengeance, the execution of judgment on all those who oppose the Lord. Remember, uh, Christ is our King and as we'll be confessing later on this morning, he, as king, one of his functions in this office is to subdue all his and our enemies. We should praise the Lord for that work of subduing all his and our enemies. James Hamilton in his commentary on this psalm and this section in particular says, some people have throats that are open graves because at the bottom of the throat a dead heart sits entombed in their chest for those whose hearts have been circumcised who have experienced God's life-giving love their throats are not filled with the stench of a rotting corpse but with the exaltations of God we sing with victory this is the honor for all his godly ones praise the Lord Paul ultimately sees this fulfilled by Christ through his church this month, the final benediction, the benediction the end of each service has been Romans 16.20. You guys remember what Romans 16.20 says? It's a wonderful way to end a letter. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice that's that's future. But that's that's a future reality based on a past reality that Christ did defeat Satan on the cross by his own feet being nailed. And So we have that assurance of a full victory. God is using his own people to... Uh, to bring judgment on the nations to preach the gospel and Christ the king can subdue his and our enemies by one of two ways one is by conquering their souls in conversion making enemies now friends making servants in the kingdom of darkness now servants in the kingdom of light and that's what we pray for isn't it That's what we we pray that the the Great Commission will have that effect on countless souls, that they would be conquered by Christ and for Christ. The other way, of course, is through final judgment. God will declare um, those who remain enemies, they they will be cast into outer darkness. Well, we need to move on because Psalm 149 wasn't the only Psalm that we're going to cover today. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, praise Him with trumpet sound, praise Him with lute and harp, praise Him with tambourine and dance, praise Him with strings and pipe, praise Him with sounding cymbals, praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, uh, there's a couple different ways of understanding the first verse here, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. This could be um, synonymous parallelism, which basically is saying that the second phrase is the same thing, just reworded as the first. So the sanctuary would be then the heavenly sanctuary in the heavens, is just another way of saying that thing, that we are praising God uh, who is in the heavens. Another way you understand this is to take sanctuary as the earthly temple or tabernacle and then the heavens as, of course, the heavenly one, and so it's praising God on earth and in heaven. So, fullness of creation. Praising the Lord. I don't have a dog in a fight on this particular point, just the point here is we're praising God. We praise God for his mighty deeds. And that, again, connects well with the previous song. singing a new song. Often, singing a new song has in mind a new redemptive deed. God bringing his people in the history of redemption a greater clarity of himself, uh, fuller appreciation of his power. So now we have praising for his mighty deeds. These are deeds that testify to the might, to the valor of the Lord. Think of David's mighty men of valor, those special men who were very faithful and who did great things for David and, of course, ultimately for the Lord. Here we have mighty deeds of God. Look at the Old Testament. Just go through it, scan it in your mind. What are some of the mighty deeds of God in the Old Testament? We already talked about one of them. From Psalm 149, we look back at the crossing of the Red Sea. So that was certainly a mighty deed of the Lord. There are other mighty deeds in the Old Testament. The conquering of Jericho. What was that? The conquering of Jericho. Conquering Jericho. Yeah, that was quite mighty. All odds were against them. The whole journey of bringing. The whole journey of bringing them to the promised land. Forty years. Yes. The flood. The flood. I and mean, how is the flood a mighty deed of the Lord? I agree that it is.
3: He, he, he speaks and calms the wind and the waves. Mm-hmm. Which is a New Testament reference, but that clear in the Old Testament as
0: well. Yeah, well, Psalm 107 speaks that way. So, it's both. But the flood was destructive, and salvific. There was judgment, and there was salvation. It was a mighty deed of the Lord. God saved the people, put them in the ark. Mighty salvation for them. Also, mighty deed of judgment on, on those that didn't take refuge in the ark of safety. What are some other mighty deeds of the Lord in the Old Testament?
2: When Sennacherib tried to conquer Jerusalem and Hezekiah prays in the name of the Lord come and kill all of the Assyrians.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty mighty deed. (laughs) What else in the Old Testament?
2: hmm
0: Yep. All those prophets bail Taken down. David slaying Goliath. David Slaying Goliath? Yeah. It just goes on and on. It does go on. That's why I want us to keep doing. It. <laughs>
2: The whole book of Judges
0: can keep facing up Judges to save these people. Solomon
1: constructing the temple. Solomon constructing the temple. Keep going. I would consider creation a mighty deity of itself. He <laughs> yeah. literally created
0: everything. Yes. Yes. Well, the word is power. The snake on the pole. Yeah, the bronze serpent, Numbers 21, oh. that Jesus then uh, uses in John, John 3 to speak of his own salvation to those who have been bitten by sin. All right, New Testament, mighty deeds. There might be a few there. <laughs> Let's have a school answer Jesus <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Yes, okay So bef- before we consider well, you know obviously we're going to say well the mighty deed of Christ killing you know, putting to death sin, Satan our flesh right death okay in his life he did mighty deeds. Before he went on that cross, he did mighty deeds. What are some of those? The virgin conception of birth. Yes. Okay. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> blind to see. What was that? He made the blind to see. The blind to see. To hear, the to yes. Good. Lazarus. Lazarus. Huh? Casting out demons.
3: The water and
0: Water into wine.
3: Fed 5,000 multiple times.
0: Feeding thousands upon thousands. More than once. Walking on the water. Walking on the water.
2: Calm in the storm. Calm in the storm.
3: Fulfilling prophecies. Fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, there are quite a bit in the Old Testament. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm-hmm.
0: Then, you know, the the death on the cross. What happens after he dies? The resurrection. the resurrection. Did Christ have anything to do with that? Yeah. Remember he says no one gives no one takes his life, he gives it willingly, and he also raises it. He has risen indeed. That's a mighty deed, of the Lord. How about some of the mighty deeds of God in church history? Is preserving the Scriptures. Preserving the Scriptures. Amen. Holy Spirit. and uh... Son of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So now are you kind of just summarizing the Book of Acts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Using, uh, using oppositional earthly governments... Efforts to squash the gospel that actually furthered the gospel. Yes, the which created a diaspora, and mm-hmm. even more people came to believe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the Reformation, I guess. Yeah, I, it was on my tongue. <laughs> I was waiting for you. <laughs> Great
1: revivals? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not the pseudo ones, but the real middle. I've heard some people I'm talking about mm-hmm. like that are not on top of the
2: don't be Yes. In uh, verses 3 through 5
0: we have musical instruments you know, what's going on with all these instruments there's, there's order to these instruments very briefly here the, the trumpet for instance uh, priests would blow the trumpet to call people to worship with the lute and the harp the Levites would lead the people in worship with the tambourine and dance and strings and pipe cymbals loud clashing symbols, these instruments are instruments of the people, indicating that all the people of God are to join in praise. So we have, you know, everyone involved in the worship, in the singing, in the music uh, of God, praising the Lord. What does the dance in Psalm 149 and here in Psalm 150. What does dance perhaps remind you of? Present with tambourine and dance. David dancing. David dancing. He got a little heat for that, didn't he? And did he calm down? No. Should we then use Psalm one forty nine, one fifty, as reason for all of us to just start uh, dancing up and down the aisles? Is that what uh, we're allowed to do now? Well, to ask it another way, if
3: if I get to heaven and there's dancing, I won't say, "Oh, sorry," you know, "Sorry, I'm a Baptist." <laughs> <laughs> so our our worship should our worship should reflect you know biblical reverence but also the reflection
0: of uh, new kingdom worship in the heavens right are you trying to make a case for dancing in the sa- in the sanctuary i'm trying to make a case that we should
3: worship God the way he wants to be worshipped
0: it's true we call that the regular principle for worship right the rpw good old rpw
3: so it's not necessarily about dancing or not dancing uh it's about uh Worshiping God according to his terms. Okay. It's like saying
0: contemporary music in a worship service. Secular, contemporary. Secular, okay. Music in a worship service. Throw a little MM in there, Dr. Dre. I always go back to we went to a church and the first song that
1: they sang was The Twelve Days of Christmas. You know? At Christmas time. Yeah. Know,
0: uh, what does that have to do with worshiping Right. God? Yeah. I didn't just throw those names out as if that had never happened. Uh, I was actually part of uh, a worship service in which people did play Eminem, a rapper, uh, and, and other secular authors. Uh, they played it in, in, during the offering and uh, also as a way to get people jazzed and ready to go in the morning. <laughs> like, you, this is strange fire. <laughs> i <laughs> um, surprise the Lord has preserved these people. You sir, you're a minister. How, how have you had to wrestle with Psalm 150 and, and dance and RPW? <laughs> we still wrestle with it after all these years. I still, I still go back to the
1: regular principle of worship. And, uh, see, a lot of people, you know, for instance, we're all, maybe all Calvin sitting here. A lot of people forget that in the first program Calvin world was of worship. Mm-hmm. Worship was more important than the five points to John Calvin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the problem today. Worship is just, I mean, everything goes in worship I in the evangelical world. It's whatever. I decide that I worship God rather than God decides. Mm-hmm. The, the way He ought to worship. And um, that seemed to me, to me, I never look at that and say Joyous
0: worship. Our worship should be joyous. Yes. Not necessarily the world. The, the world view does. Yeah. Our word exalt uh, comes from two Latin words, ex and sulto. To uh, sulto, if you know Spanish, saltar. Okay. Uh, it's To jump. Uh, exalt is to to leap up, to jump out, and to like leap with joy. Our spirits ought to leap with joy when we hear the gospel. We are called to sing new songs to the Lord. We're not supposed to be staid and passive and we're not supposed to live up to the name often given us, the chosen frozen. We should be, as the Puritans say, fully affectionate, we should have the affections set ablaze by the fire of the gospel, just the beauty and the... Uh, purification of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. We should be full of affection. We should be dancing. <clears throat> and all of us, you know, it's not just the minister up there doing something and we're watching him. We're all involved. It says here in verse 6: let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Look at Psalm 150, notice that there are very few words between the next call to praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has a breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So it's praise Him, praise God, praise the Lord. In the Hebrew here, this is 13 times in six verses, 13 times there is a command to praise the Lord. The singer is literally praising God with each breath that he takes. He cannot get past a syllable before he is then called or calls himself to praise the Lord. What does that mean? But this, all of life, all that we do, with all that we think, with all that we say, and all that we are motivated by, we are to be worshipers. These psalms end as all our lives ought to begin and end. That's with praise for the Lord. All of life is to be one of worship. We are To give a sacrifice of praise, all that we are. And we don't have to be discouraged knowing that what we offer is not in itself perfect, but that what we offer is being offered through our mediator, through the true minister, Jesus Christ, and being purified by his own blood and brought to the heavenlies by his spirit. So it's acceptable in God's sight. And so he does take pleasure in his people. He delights in us. He adorns us, whom he has humbled. He adorns us with salvation. What ought we to do but praise him then? As one of the
1: psalms says, I joy unto the hearts of God when we met the eyes of God. Many of us really enjoy coming getting up after this Lord's day in morning. morning getting never remember to, right? to become the <coughs> church itself in the presence of God for joy yes the psalms keep saying that to him
0: so over and over again it's a it's a joy to come in the presence of the Lord to worship his holy name it ought to be a joy that's why we exist what is the chief end of man man's chief end is to Glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to take delight in God forever. And we can do that knowing that He has eternally delighted in us because He has given us salvation in His Son. It's beautiful news. The kind of news that you want to reflect on as the year ends and folds into the next kind of activity we ought to be doing regularly. So that when I had asked you to think about the mighty deeds of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New Testament church history, these are things that we should be filling our notebooks with, filling our, our hearts with. Because there are times when we will be lying away anxiously. And one way to encourage ourselves, one way to comfort ourselves is looking back at what God done and looking forward to what God will do what he has assured us he will do well let's pray our glorious God your deeds are mighty you have given us so many reasons to sing new song to you We thank you, O Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for your great work redemption that you have shown us in types and shadows in the Old Testament. You've shown us in the fullness of time the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for redemption we have in Jesus. We thank you that you've given us breath and life and all things that you have given us, you've given us mouths with which to praise you. And we do pray that you would cause our spirits to be full of joy, full of affection, grounded in the blood of Jesus Christ. That we might praise your name more faithfully and with greater fervency. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.